Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. It is Friday, February 18th, 2022, and I am your host for this podcast, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS, and my name is Kevin McDonald. What a wild and crazy week, as those of you who kept a close eye or ear on the state legislature know. It was uh, crazy, especially the last 24 hours, but really weak. We had an all-nighter in the House, and the goal of that was to get through the Voting Rights Act, uh, only to fall victim to a more than two-hour filibuster to close out the Senate side of the legislative session. Lots to dive into here. We got plenty of coverage for you uh, and want to know what you thoughts, what your thoughts were on the session as well. You can drop us a line here, reach out to us on social media, and let us know if you thought it was a successful session or if they left too much on the cutting room floor, so to speak. Also, we are super interested in the idea of whether or not this year's session is a perfect example of a need to extend the length of our sessions, move to a permanent paid professional legislature so they're working year-round instead of trying to cram in really complicated issues into a 30-day session, which is supposed to be focused on the budget. Uh, Lots to get into there. We'd love to hear from you. Again, if you don't already follow us on social media, we're there on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Just search for at NMInFocus. All right, let's kick it off this way by looking at the things that did pass and are now on their way to the governor's desk. We're going to do that with a special journalist line opinion panel this week. We welcome back Algernon Diamasa from the Las Cruces Sun News, Trip Jennings, executive director of New Mexico In-Depth, and Julia Goldberg of the Santa Fe Reporter. Been a while since we've had Julia. Thrilled to have her back. Again, they're going to break down some of the key high-profile issues that made it through, some of them by the skin of their teeth, others that seem to have consensus sort of from the get-go, and of course wrapped up in that, is the budget, which is priority number one, has to be done, has to be balanced. That's according to the state constitution, and that took all the way through a concurrence process with a conference committee made up of lawmakers from both the House and Senate. In the end, they came up with a compromise on a record-breaking budget, over $8 billion with a B dollars here in New Mexico. So let's dive right in. Here's host Gene Grant. Welcome to our three line panelists this week. First, let's say hello to Las Cruces Sun News reporter Algernon Damasa. Good to see you, my friend. You joined hello. us at the start of the session as well. We also welcome back Trip Jennings. He's executive director at New Mexico In-Depth. Good to see you again. It's been a little bit, Trip. Welcome back. And yeah, hello to another you. long lost face, Julia Goldberg of the Santa Fe Reporter. It's been a while, but we're awfully glad to have you back. Thank you all for being here and rolling with all of this last minute news from the Capitol. We're going to start out by talking about what lawmakers have passed in the session. It took some procedural wrangling in both chambers, but the governor can claim several victories in this 30-day session. But some of her other top priorities will have to wait until a future year. We'll talk about all of that in a little over 20 minutes. For now, let's focus on what made it to Michelle Lujan Grisham's desk. The biggest headline being a nearly $8.5 billion budget. Despite other failures, wasn't this the main priority trip of the whole thing? Got to get that budget passed. Was there supposed to be a bigger fight about this in your mind? 
Um, no, I mean, some of the fights were in some of the, 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 you know, obviously this is the biggest bill they have to pass every 30 day session, mm -hmm. but you know, the, the fights were in some of the language, you know, around, um, high, you know, they tried to sneak in hydrogen hub act stuff into the bill uh, the budget. And that was taken out at the last minute. There were a little kind of like, uh, wrangling in the back rooms over this. I don't think there was a huge, uh, uh, fight because, you know, they put a lot of money into the reserves mm -hmm. and they have so much money this year. That I think um, it's it's um, I, I didn't see a, 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 re a really huge fight. Mm -hmm. Some of my panelists would disagree. It's an interesting point, Julia uh, Goldberg. You know, it's a big increase from any budgets we've ever had. But one of the big talking points in the budget is more money for public employees like teachers. Uh, how important was it for Democrats to get this passed, both for the people it impacts certainly, but also heading into the midterms? Sure. I mean, certainly, I think the last thing they wanted was to come out of this session looking like they couldn't get anything done, even when they're flush with money. Mm -hmm. Can't do it then. When can you do it? And then given the crisis, um, the teacher vacancy crisis, I think getting that through um, was probably the most important thing for the governor to be able to say was accomplished. I, I still have questions about the um, how the actual budget recommendation for the state equalization guarantee, because there seem to be different numbers about what it's going to cost to implement mm. those raises, but I'm sure they'll figure it out at some point. That's a good point, right? At some point, that's an interesting point there. <laughs> Algernon, the revised budget plan included uh, includes $55 million for bonuses intended to help recruit and retain law enforcement officers. And interestingly, that's a lot higher than the original 13 million originally proposed by the governor. Uh, was that increase a makeup of sorts? Uh, as it became more clear, the other anti-crime crime legislation wasn't going to make it through? Well, we can't forget that it's an election year and crime has been very much part of the agenda as mm -hmm. well as trying to signal strong support for law enforcement officers who have uh, in some ways been uh, crying foul and crying for help. Um, for a couple of years now. And mm -hmm. so that investment seemed very important. And I also think alongside the budget bill, something that hasn't gotten as much fanfare because of all the other sort of big headlines that have come out of it is that we got a larger than usual capital outlay uh, this year. A lot of projects and mm -hmm. a lot of money moved around, um, especially one thing uh, to notice is that a lot of money that had been devoted to public school outlays got transferred to the maintenance fund so that we can actually uh, clean and repair and maintain uh, some of the buildings that we've recently built. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's another big investment that we're going to be seeing. So I didn't want to just run away from law enforcement. But, you know, besides the budget bill, that was also an actual uh, increased investment that we saw out of this session. Mm -hmm. uh, trip capping interest rates on storefront loans at 36% was anything but a slam dunk. But you know, lawmakers ended up passing that limit after years and years and years and years of trying. Were you surprised that all that, you know, that it got done this year in the middle of all um, this other stuff? Yesterday, I my jaw was uh, like dropped right. when I saw that because, as I was telling before, uh, we started this. You know, I remember writing about this back in 2007 and then, you know, think New Mexico kind of uh, posted on Twitter that this has been around for at least since 1999. It's never gotten through. Uh, the lobby for the the industry has been uh, incredibly powerful, mm -hmm. and so I saw it, you know, as part of the, the you know, it's moving through the legislature. There's going to be another year uh, where it might make it close, 
Um, but you know, it's not going to make it through. And when they passed it, um, I was, that's a, that's a huge surprise actually yeah. for me. Julia Goldberg, what do you, what do you make of the, um, the compromise to move the implementation back a year? I think, um, I think it's just that it's a compromise. And I mean, as Tripp was saying, I think the governor choosing to make this one of her agenda items helped move the needle on this longstanding problem. And important to remember too, that Think New Mexico, um, which was such a force behind it, this is a piece of a larger framework that has to do with retirement security mm-hmm. in New Mexico. And you know, when I spoke with Fred Nathan, God, probably already two years ago on this, he told me that 62% of New Mexicans don't have anything saved for retirement. Mm at all. Um, and 80% have $10,000 or less. So if you look at it in the big picture, I think pushing it back for a year doesn't make that much, is not that impactful because you're really talking about one piece of trying to look at a much larger um, problem. So this is a big victory, but I think it's sort of the beginning of addressing a, a really systemic issue. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned, uh, I, I appreciate you mentioning this because it, it fits in with the governor also getting her wish on eliminating the tax on social security. But then also, again, she did push it through the gross receipts tax uh, uh, cut as well. Does do those add, Julia, to the understanding that she really got something of substance here on this, in, in, this, uh, in this package? Yeah, I mean, you know, tax reform isn't probably the sexiest issue during right. an election year when you start getting into the weeds of it. And certainly, I think more than one lawmaker pointed out that this was a kind of confusing way to deal with tax policy, mm-hmm. sort of piecemeal, but both the predatory lending piece and the social security issue, those are not brand new problems that haven't been studied. The analysis mm-hmm. wasn't slot bash. They, they knew these were the right pieces to go. And I think certainly for seniors who, as I understand it, vote, um, it's going to be a welcome, a welcome decision. Mm-hmm. Algernon, we got a new t- a child tax credit in there too. Uh, again, when you start to look at this closer, does the package look a little bit, look a little bit better <laughs> on closer inspection? Well, um, we're gonna see. Mm-hmm. Uh, tax policy is complicated and it involves in, in things like a child tax credit and some of these other tax incentives and credits that have been passed this session. Mm-hmm. Um, it's We're really going to see, we're basing it on projections of how, what the stimulus value will be, how much spending money, discretionary money we're moving into people's hands and whether that's gonna go into savings account or whether that's gonna go into the economy. Um, It's interesting, and I think we'll probably be talking about this quite a bit, but this was a 30-day session, which in even-numbered years is the sessions that are supposedly devoted to budgetary and financial policy. But tax policy is complicated, and (laughs) Mm -hmm. trying to jam that as well as all of the hundreds of other pieces of legislation into a 30-day session, I think it's hard to do tax policy really well especially when you have these bills coming late in the session, when the nights go longer and lawmakers are trying to work this out on sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll see. And I, you know, I pour through the fiscal analyses of these tax credits and I'm not convinced that the numbers are going to align the way they think it does because it's so hard to predict consumer behavior. Mm, excellent point there. Hey, Tripp, we've got to go back to crime. There's you no know, doubt. Again, it took a rebirth of sorts for a package of bills. Added on to a related bill as a 160-page amendment, as you know. But early Thursday morning, very early Thursday morning, a deal was struck. 
And included in the package is stricter penalties for some crimes and uh, police recruitment and retention bonuses, uh, new judgeships, including here in Albuquerque, creation of a crime for operating a chop shop and expanded access to ankle monitoring for pretrial defendants. Is that enough? I mean, for critics that said this legislature were dragging their heels on curbing crime to the last second here? You know, when we talk about crime and then we talk about it within the context of elections, um, it's really going to depend on, you know, where you come down. Uh, I think there will be critics who are like, this is not enough. Yeah. You know, people who, who will say, hey, uh, they got it through. They, you know, some of this other stuff was onerous uh, on one end and other people will say it's not enough. Uh, you know, um, the governor really wanted some wanted to to show that that she was taking crime seriously because it is it has been a, a major issue. Um, I think that it's uh, honestly it's like tax policy sometimes with elections. You you don't know exactly how this is going to be received um, as it goes to the election year, but I do think that this is going to be where she says I in in ads I did this I did this I also did raise teacher salaries. It's going to be about marketing. Yeah. So I think in some ways this is about you know getting the word uh, she has something she can hang her out on for re-election frankly mm -hmm. julia pick up on that if you would you know the, this idea that the crime bill had so much stuff in the air going in and then coming out of the back end of these 30 days again is it going to be enough for people to feel like something good has happened here that makes people feel safer frankly i mean you know just to reinforce what trip just pointed out you know the Republican Governors Association group just unveiled this, you know, six-figure ad campaign solely based on the governor not being tough enough on crime. So this gives her something. The details of this bill, I find very, um, I don't know how anyone could look at this and actually feel like, oh, this is helpful to anybody. The electronic monitoring, there's only electronic monitoring, correct me if I'm wrong, someone, I think in four, in the second, the fourth, San Juan and Sandoval, the bill doesn't require it be increased anywhere else. It doesn't really require anything. It creates a grant program for pretrial services. It doesn't say when that should happen. It doesn't exactly say who's paying for it. Um, it's sort of, you know, so in general, even the analysis from the legislature um, says, you know, the best way to deal with crime is to have more treatment, is to have this overall approach. Mm -hmm. You know, this to me sort of they chipped away at a couple of things, but I don't I don't actually see how this is particularly helpful. Some mm -hmm. of some of the higher profile details strike me as just that, that high profile, not necessarily substantive. But good point. I mean, there. even during the, the committee process, the ah. Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, uh, Senator Cervantes from down here in Las Cruces, I mean, he said himself that sentence enhancements, which got a lot of play yep. in this package, um, he suggested that sentence enhancements don't really have much deterrent value and uh, are kind of a feel-good measure. They, they, they allow lawmakers to feel like they've done something without actually addressing the issue. This is, you know, I mean, Senator Cervantes is very candid about these things. And he said at one point, this is a near quote, he said, I know it's an election year and we do things. Right. I, yeah, I mean, can I say, uh, Algernon is, I mean, we're all talking about the same thing, which is when we talk about legislative sessions in elections year, election years, mm -hmm. or even in a out two years, you always have to think about how this plays in the election. And that's, that's kind of how this, this thing probably was put together as part of it. That's yeah. part of the, the, yeah. the, the, the analysis by folks is how does this going to play in, in June and in, in, in November? Yep. 
Good point there. Hey, I want to get some final thoughts on what lawmakers were able to accomplish during this regular session, uh, during this 30, as Algernon mentioned. Let me start with you, Algernon, on that. Uh, again, this is opinion-based, so it's tough to do with reporters, but out of what passed, should we be happy with the session in its total, its totality? I don't want to annoy you, Gene, but I'm actually going to sort of bridge our uh, segments here, and I'm actually going to talk about how Although some things did not make it to the finish line, mm -hmm. I think that lawmakers and advocates were able to really advance some conversations that will return. Um, I think there you're feeling the shadow of the election bill mm -hmm. and some of the voting rights position, uh, provisions as well as election security provisions that didn't make it in the closing minutes of the session. But I think that's coming back. And I think that it, you know in that failure, there's going to be a lot of energy and passion and perhaps some organizing at the street level uh, to try to push that through in a, in a future session. And I don't mean that I, that's not the only example, but I think that right. might be the loudest example of that. Sometimes even if the bill doesn't make it to the governor's desk, mm -hmm. the debate and the politics actually does have a positive way of moving the ball forward. That's a good way to put it, Algernon. That's interesting. Julia, your thoughts on that? Should we consider this 30 a success for New Mexico? I mean, I think that the um, the bill legalizing fentanyl strips um, for drug checking is a really important bill. And I, you know, I guess unlike other reporters, I'm happy to have an opinion. I was really pleased to see that it passed and that it passed easily because that hasn't been the case in other states. It was a similar kind of amendment to the uh, Harm Reduction Act in Pennsylvania failed. I know there's mm -hmm. other states that are putting it off because they're concerned about how it'll be perceived, but there's just growing research that this is really an important deterrent and a kind of modernized deterrent moving away from sort of thinking of the drug problem as being one that's entirely around injection, injection, injectionable mm -hmm. injections. Um, and so I was pleased to see that it didn't get mired down in kind of a moralistic fight about drug use, because I think, you know, a lot of it connects to the problems with violence. It connects to the problems, um, you know, with unhoused people, the opiate and fentanyl issue kind of spreads all across New Mexico's issues. So I think it's, you know, not as fancy. It probably won't affect everyday life for you or me, but it's I think it was an important bill. So if mm -hmm. nothing else. I don't think folks would argue that, Julie, uh, Julian. Absolutely. Trippy, your thoughts. Uh, success, this 30? I, I, I have three. Um, one, in the larger education, K-12 education debate, there was a lot of backroom dealing with, you know, uh, New Mexico's 23 tribes having more control over educating their own children. Right. And actually, they got a lot more money in the Indian Education Fund this year than they ever have. Um, that was a big uh, win for... Uh, advocates from the tribal communities. Uh, another one um, is, uh, this is something that wasn't paid attention to greatly, but there is a, a uranium cleanup bill that, that, right. that passed today, yep. which is a big deal up in around the tribal areas in the Northwest. Um, huge, it's been around for decades. Um, and, uh, you know, I said three and I, <laughs> it just dropped out of my head. It'll come back. I don't back. know what the third one will about come it. back. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no sweat. Thank you all for that discussion. We'll check back in with all of you in, in less than 15 to talk about all of the legislation that didn't pass and what happens next. While there was plenty there, especially the governor, Michelle Luan Grisham, can be happy about. They were priorities she laid out 
in her State of the State address. There were some big uh, issue items there that didn't make it through, most notably that Voting Rights Act, which we talked about off the top. Uh, The House, uh, very last minute after an all-nighter, pushed that through, and then it died on a filibuster in the Senate. This is after being revived a couple different ways. First, there were things stripped off of the bill, including allowing 16-year-olds to vote in some local elections, like school board elections. That got stripped out. And then the final bill that made it through the House was actually a combination of a bunch of these bills that was attached to another voting bill uh, as a more than 160-page amendment But again, it was all for naught. We will no doubt hear about this again in future sessions. And again, this largely stems out of what we are seeing play out across the nation in terms of voter access bills, voter rights bills. And so we have not heard the last of that. Also, the hydrogen hub, something the governor made a priority in her state of the state address. It was tried to bring back several different ways, especially as an economic development package for the Four Corners, where the uh, coal-fired plant is getting ready to close this summer permanently. But it just uh, seemed to be dead on arrival even every time it got resuscitated. And so wanted to delve into what went wrong there. And uh, in addition, we're going to sneak in some late-breaking news here, which is the announcement from Speaker of the House, Brian Egolf, at the very end of the session, right before Sine Die, that he was not going to run for re-election. Uh, just a huge amount of breaking news this week. Uh, before our taping, or actually after our taping, the governor also dropped the bombshell that she was lifting the mask mandate for indoor gatherings effective immediately. We'll have much more on that in next week because it was late breaking news, but lots to dive into here, and let's get right to it with the Line Opinion panel. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham will have a tough decision ahead as she looks down the list of legislation that didn't make it through the regular session. Let's welcome back to our Line Opinion panelists to dig through it all and the impact this will have moving deeper into this election year. Let's start with the Voting Rights Act, which ran out of time when Farmington Senator Bill Scherer filibustered the last two hours of the session. Now, the House approved the new version of the original proposal as part of an amendment on a related bill, but in the end, there wasn't enough time. Could supporters have done anything different, Algernon, to get this thing done? Was there something in hindsight that could have been different here? Boy, I'm not sure. And again, not to be a broken record, but I think one thing that you're up against is just the limits of time and the limits of time can be weaponized um, by by either of the parties, the majority or the minority. And so that's the thing. That's that's the wall that advocates just find themselves hammering their heads against over and over. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm not really sure. the only thing also is just that, you know, on the theme of time is just to really try to get the bills solidly written because some of our committee chairs do like to work on legislation and really try to get into the weeds and the nuts and bolts of it. And that can add time to the committee process. Mm-hmm. And so if there's a way to really get some Brooklyn Bridge size bolts into your legislation um, so that it doesn't get weighed down by technicalities. I think that's one thing, but the politics are hard to move on this just because of the structure of the process. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trip on this Voting Rights Act. I mean, it's it's got, I mean, Maggie Tulu Oliver comes out with a victory. 
uh, for the governor. I mean, how big of a deal for progressive voters might this be? You know, um, th this is an extraordinary kind of larger issue. To, to Algernon's point, it would have been really smart, I think, in the interim to really build a consensus on this thing and get some bill that would have come out in the first or second week and then tried to push it through if they had wanted to do this. I mean, they did want it. Generally, um, you know, expanding access to voting, which is what this bill would have done uh, a bit large, generally helps Democrats. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when Republicans were using the call of the Senate, these procedural moves, frankly. Uh, and the, uh, Greg Brandt from Rio Rancho used that effectively in the Senate to really bottle up the voting rights legislation because um, access to voting has has always been uh, a big deal between the parties. Mm -hmm. And so I um, I think that I think in New Mexico, this is not a, this is not like another state where I mean, it's going to be interesting to watch the gubernatorial election and some of the other elections. But um you know, is this something that will deeply affect the, the elections and how the Democrats do versus the Republicans? I don't know. But mm -hmm. it's not like we're living in Georgia or Kansas or someplace like that. So mm -hmm. um, it's very interesting. Interesting. When I met, by the way, when I, met, I should be a little more clear. I mentioned it's a victory for Maggie Toulouse Oliver. Just getting it to Algernon's point, getting it to a certain place. If not over the finish line, just getting it to a certain place could be considered a victory, Julia. But do you expect this to come up again in the next 60-day session? Is this, is this going to be a big push for these folks who really want to see this happening? I just, I can only view this bill in the shadow of the 2020 election and with the horizon of the 2024 election. I think voter rights is so politicized and it's, it's almost just code for talking about everything that's happened on the national stage. So I agree with those out on a trip. I don't think this was ever going to get through. I think it could have said nothing other than we need to dust the voting machines on a regular basis. And it would have been held up simply for the fact of it being a voter rights bill being proposed by Democrats within this larger context. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Good point there. Uh, in terms of priorities for the governor, guys, we got to talk about this. Hydrogen was also at the top of the list. Very noisy, very loud. We saw several similar pieces of legislation surfaced before being struck down, one after the other. Now, first, will the governor call a special session on this? I'm going to start with Algernon. And second, will the outcome be any different in your view? It's a fair question. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the day of the of the Cine DA. The, the session has just ended and there are calls to, to start a special session. And the governor did do that to get cannabis over the finish That's line. Right. Uh, last year. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if this is going to rise to a level. The, the Secretary of State issued a statement that didn't sound like she was anticipating the governor might do something like that. Um, we will see if this is something that rises to where we need to get a special session to get at least some of this done. Maybe some of the protections for election workers, maybe some of the election security changes that they think that they can get uh, enough votes on board. But um, it's going to be hard. And, you know, as Julia says, I think that there's probably a sort of a baked in resistance that would not prevent Republicans from using procedural moves to delay its progress again. Yeah, good point there. Hey, Tripp, this hydrogen issue, I got to stay with this thing. Is it exposing a rift between Democrats here? I mean, it's been a wedge issue within the party itself and not only not the only one. How could so many bills fail with such an overwhelmingly Democratic majority here? you got to ask a well, simple question. Well, 
I, I mean, it really does expose this rift over folks, uh, you know, who, who wanted cleaner kind of, you know, a hydrogen versus using the natural gas and, and kind of holding up, not holding up, but but benefiting the oil and gas, you know, industry in New Mexico. There's a there's a real deep conversation here, um, you know, to the point of a special session that might involve a holder, hydrogen hub act. They haven't built a consensus on this. Right. You know, in 2021, um, they were not talking about hydrogen. They were talking about climate change, but they weren't talking about hydrogen hub act. This is coming from the federal government, and this is a way of, you know, New Mexico trying to get something in law that might be able to compete for federal dollars is how I understand it. Mm -hmm. And it, it's going to take some time for them to really work with a lot of critics who were coming from the left side on this stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was amazing how many folk turned out to say, this is not a good bill. We do not like this. So there's a lot of backroom kind of probably negotiating and I don't think they brought the critics around from the uh, on 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 the left, you know, the left of the Democratic right. Party. I say left, left of Michelle Lujan sure. on this issue. Mm -hmm. Julia, um, Speaker Egolf tabled it three times. <laughs> I mean, something seemed disconnected here with this bill. Well, yeah, and Trip tri is is absolutely right. You know, it's it's the federal infrastructure bill, I believe, that has this built-in grant money that. Mm -hmm can apply for and so clearly this was this immediate attempt let's set up this framework so that we can go get this money um, but the problem as Tripp has said is every environmental organization in the state and the country has come out with very strong arguments against this as a form of energy and these are normally um, you know people who I think the governor is used to having in her camp good point and this there's certainly Brian Egolf's constituents. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just think it was a non-starter there, you know, unlike with cannabis where so much of the groundwork had been laid and the objections that remained really were not based on much. Um, and so they were able to push it through. This is one where the, the objections are pretty substantive. And I don't think the argument of, well, let's just get the framework so we can get the money is going to be very compelling to its critics. That's right. It's sort of an old New Mexico way of doing things, get the Fed money first and figure it out. Um, <laughs> You know, interesting, I want to talk about how we do these things in dummy bills and, you know, the machinations of, you know, changing pretrial detention standards, you know, making it official. Should legislators have seen the potential constitutional issues earlier on some of these things? I, I, just something just doesn't seem connected here. Uh, Trip, let me start with you on that one. So, how we're doing this, basically. This is a great frustration I get from people all the time. They look at a 30 and they say, there's no way we're going to get all these things in here. No wonder we're playing all these games that makes the public sort of lose faith here. Is that part of the problem here, all these machinations that we're, the public's finding out about sometimes? I, I mean, you know, honestly, uh, these games and maneuvers are going to be in every legislature across the, the, the nation and in mm -hmm. Congress. I mean, there, there's a certain amount of, of prestige, I mean, procedural moves, intricacies, you know, intricacies that, you know, you one can use. I mean, the, the old adage is, is, um, you know, whoever understands the process is going to have power in a right. legislature. And that's true. As far as the dummy bills, not surprised at all, even though the Senate several years ago came out and said, we're not going to use these like we used to anymore. Right. We're going to try to use them as in emergencies. The question around some of these dummy bills, especially around the hydrogen hub act was, is this an emergency? So, um, I mean, the, the public needs to understand that there's always going to be, you know, conversations in the back room and people having to compromise on something over, you know, on something that they, their 
their constituents might not like. Um, at the same time, you know, this might start, uh, might bolster the conversation about a paid legislature, frankly. Mm -hmm. That's also part of the part of a much larger conversation. That's right. Um, let's talk about Brian Egolf. Can't hold off any longer. We just, you know, news came out Thursday that he is resigning from his position as Speaker of the House. Algernon, let me talk with you. First of all, the, the obvious question is, was this a big surprise? Uh, you know, let's kind of get past that. Uh, why? What, uh, what, do you, what do you suppose happened here? Well, it does seem to have been a surprise to uh, many members of the House at the very least, and certainly to a lot of people observing it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Speaker E. Golf uh, seemed to be uh, in a very powerful position, but also there was a lot of political pressure on him, um, ethics complaints that have uh, you know, repeatedly been filed against him to try to undermine his leadership, to dislodge him from caucus. And uh, he made this surprise announcement as the closing minutes were underway that he was going to spend more time with his family, um, which unfortunately mirrors the kind of joke that people say when people leave in, in, a, in a cloud of trouble. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know what, what the speaker has in mind or what is next for him, but uh, right. it certainly came to, as a surprise to a lot of people today. Tripp, were you surprised? Oh yeah, totally. I, I was, um, you know, sitting here in my, I'm working out of my house and, um, I texted my colleague, um, and, um, her reaction, I can't say it on a family friendly show, you know, um, my, my, my kind of reaction too. I will say this, if this were a regular session and not a pandemic session, it would have been harder probably to keep the, the secret because there'd been more people in the hallways milling around and secrets don't stay. Uh, and then, I mean, I, it, it's one of those things where there probably were not a lot of people mm -hmm. um, and he might be able to, but I, to Algernon's point, I have no idea uh, what this is about, but my head goes, well, what causes this? You know, what what's the precipitating factor or factors? Right. Hey, Tripp, uh, real quick, a favor before I get to, um, Moving on about Brian Egolf, we had an arrest of Georgine Lewis as well. Uh, drunk driving arrest, as we know. What? How did that impact the calculus in Santa Fe? Did it come so late in the process? It didn't make. Didn't matter. What happened there in your mind, if anything? I mean, you know, there's the public conversation on whether she should resign or not, because you know. we've had other situations, you know, with Richard Martinez and 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 uh, Monica Youngblood in the past. Yep. I mean, I had to cancel one of her committee hearings. Uh, in a 30-day session, and this is in the last half of the session, mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying that that's huge, but every committee hearing counts in a 30-day session. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, as far as procedurally, I'm not sure, but I do think that um, there's going to be a public conversation around, mm -hmm. you, you know, one thing that I think about is it's unfortunate that this happens, um, but in the roundhouse or any state house, there is a culture of, this is not about any one person, sure. but there's an in, whining and dining of lawmakers. That's right. You know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, what do you do with that kind of stuff? That's a good point. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Julia, back to the point here. Sorry about that. Um, for Speaker Regolf, you've covered him oh. since day one. Were you surprised? I was surprised, mm -hmm. and I'm surprised by myself in the last few weeks. My cynicism uh, guard seems to be down a little bit. I, I don't find it impossible to believe that Brian Egolf wants to spend more time with his family. I mean, just having seen him over the years. He's pretty devoted to his daughters and mm -hmm. his wife is 
pretty busy with her business. I don't I don't find it impossible to believe. I mean, I, I could probably be proven wrong by some horrendous scandal any minute, but I'm, I'm going to I'm going to believe him for now. <laughs> That's true. But Anybody, that, you know, any predictions in the last 10 seconds on who the next speaker might be by any chance? Julia, do you have a thought on that? <laughs> hmm. I mean, not off the top of my head. Uh, how, Javier Martinez was just elected majority leader. I mean, there's yeah. going to be a lot of jockeying. I don't know that he has a power base yet, but, um, you know, Trisha Lundstrom. Uh, we AKSC. shall see. That's right. Yeah. Hey, thanks again to our online panel, our line panel specifically, as always, this week. Now, be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics the line covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. Not done with the legislative session here. There were a lot of procedural things that came up in this session, use of what are called dummy bills. We hinted at it earlier where you can also just take an amendment, which has a lot of things from other bills that may have been vetted in one chamber but not the other, and add it on to a related bill. Uh, we saw a lot of things going on on that front. We have also seen, again, questions talk about whether or not we are doing this the most efficient way possible where we have odd years that are 60-day sessions, even years that are 30-day sessions supposed to solely focus on the budget. But this year, a prime example of a 30-day session where we were dealing with highly complex issues, whether it be tax reform, uh, doing away with uh, high-interest loans for storefront loans, uh, as well as the crime package, which had a lot of things wrapped up in it, environmental issues, which largely did not go anywhere this year, in part because of the complex nature of it. There's housing issues, so many things we tried to tackle in this 30-day session. Do we need to extend the length of the sessions? Do we need to look towards a semi-professional or professional legislature? And so we wanted to reach out to friend of the show, Dr. Timothy Krebs from the UNM Poli-Sci Department. Always has some great thoughts on this and follows along very closely. We caught up with him on Facebook Live on Friday. That was with host Gene Grant. And here is their conversation for you.
Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. Hey, folks, welcome to Friday. Not our usual Wednesday for a Facebook Live, but the session just ended yesterday at noon. As you know, we're, we're glad to have Dr. Paul Krebs, political science professor at the University of New Mexico, poli-sci department. We're going to get into some of the interesting things that happened in this 30-day session. But let me start, uh, Dr. Krebs, just your top-line reaction, as they say on the big shows, um, to what just transpired, meaning we had an awful lot of things, and we'll, we'll start to get into detail about this. An awful lot of things that are huge issues tried to get done in a 30-day session. I'm so curious, just from your point of view as a political science professor here in New Mexico, is our, our session lengths just not viable anymore in a fast-moving world? You know, I, I, I really think they, they aren't viable anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you've got uh, in a 30-day session, it's supposed to be about the budget. Uh, the governor, though, can put things on 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 her call, uh, mm -hmm. legislative items that are non non budgetary in, in nature. Um, and even, you know, just that one person having that ability to do that, the, that agenda can get packed pretty, pretty quickly. And in a, in our modern world, things are really can be really complicated. Um, mm -hmm. Just talking about crime talking about environmental protection, um, you know, the, the budgetary implications and economic implications of different tax laws and ta tax changes and so forth. Um, mm -hmm. All of these things require a lot of thought, a lot of discussion, a lot of effort yes. uh, to get to some kind of agreement. And, uh, you know, in a 30-day session, it's really hard. And you're talking about you know, having citizen legislators who are taking time away from you know, their families and their, their livelihoods and so forth to serve uh, mm -hmm. in these roles. And uh, it's, a, it's a very tall order. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, having a discussion about, about increasing the length of our legislative sessions and perhaps, uh, you know, increasing the staff capacity would make our legislature function more effectively uh, in, mm -hmm. in the modern world. And, um, you know, allow them to do the things that, uh, you know, it's clear that that voters want, that our residents want, that our state needs um, to to accomplish. And we have this kind That's of right. frustration. We have this kind of frustration after every legislative session. It's like we ran out of time. That's right. It's, you know, <laughs> it's a common story. Absolutely. Hey, I want to apologize. I did the very thing I swore I would not do and call you Paul Krebs. I went ahead and did it. I'm so sorry. I'm sure you've heard it before. I'm sorry. I, I, have, I have heard it. I've, I have heard it once or twice uh, in I'm town. Sorry. Yes, if I'm related, <laughs> I, I am not. Uh, there yeah, you go. My fault. Kind of, well, it allows us to clear that up by getting it wrong. Yeah. So I appreciate yeah. that. Just in case anyone was wondering. Yeah. Um, interesting. Dr. Krebs, I got I to go right to something that's just so interesting to me is the use of dummy bills. Mm -hmm. uh, something this session just was sort of like beyond the beyond for dummy bills. I mean, we've seen them before. There may be even an argument in some capacities for them. But could you explain to the folks what they are and, and what happened here with the unbelievable use of them this session? Well, I can't really, uh, you know, it's, I, I can't really speak to, you know, why they were used or, you know, if they were used more this time around than in previous previous sessions, um, because it, it's hard to compare this session with other ones, just simply because we're still, in, we're still in COVID. 
It's mm -hmm. not normal functioning. Um, so, you know, dummy bills are just really what they are is they're just sort of legislative vehicles um, that are used to sort of to, to introduce legislation or to move legislation um, after the deadline for, for filing bills has passed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a legislative maneuver. It's a, it's a tool that, that leadership uh, can use um, to, you know, keep, keep uh, a legislative idea viable after the <laughs> point at which, you know, that, that sort of initial deadline for filing bills uh, has passed. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a bit unorthodox uh, in, in, in terms of process, you know, there's no, there's, there's a sort of generic title given to, to a dummy bill. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no author, you know, listed, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's no sort of bill, you know, when bills are introduced, they're assigned to committees, there's none of that stuff. So, you know, it all happens in an, in an unorthodox way. Mm -hmm. uh, the le legislatures can determine uh, how they function. Uh, so long as so long as it's consistent with the, the Constitution, mm -hmm. um, the legislatures they, they, they decide on their rules and how they function. And and so it's uh, from that standpoint, it's OK. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I want to hitch this um, thought we're on here about the bills to the Hydrogen uh, uh, Act that did not happen. Um, it was a way, almost like a way to bring something from the dead. <laughs> it's a yeah, very interesting exactly. way to, to use these dummy bills. But I'm curious where you feel the voter is left in this process. It's awfully hard, even given the challenges of COVID and Zoom and all that kind of thing. It's very hard for the citizen to track their citizen legislatures moves when you have amendments, you know, 160 pages on top of a four page original bill. And no one has time to read these things. So I'm curious, where does the, where does the voter get left off in this? Well, I, you know, uh, you know, clearly, I, you know, there is a certain there's a there is a kind of a, a lack of a, a lack of transparency with the with these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, large, complicated bills. Uh, we, we see this in the U.S. Congress all the time uh, where members of Congress don't have they don't read the stuff they're 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 voting on simply because they don't right. have enough time. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, you know, bills become longer and, and more complicated, uh, some, you know, often on purpose so that you can have enough stuff in there to, mm -hmm. to, to build the coalitions you need to build in order to pass legislation. Uh, so you kind of, you know, you build it bigger so that you can give more stuff to more people to get them to say, yeah, right. I can't not vote for this. Yeah. Uh, you know, so... So that's part of it. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of bigger issue of transparency, I, I think it matters more. I think it matters a bit more to folks in the media, uh, reform groups. Um, I think for the average person out there, what they want, they don't care so much about the inside politics stuff that's going on here. Uh, mm -hmm. What they want to see is they want to see results. They want to see a legislature that functions to serve their interests, to, to address the challenges they face, to address community conditions and statewide conditions, to move 
the state forward. And so, uh, you know, on some level, I think, you know, for the average voter, you know, these, this kind of stuff is just like, yeah, I mean, it's not that, imp- yeah. it's not particularly important. What's important mm-hmm. is sort of what's done at the end and whether it improves people's lives. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Process is a difficulty. I mean, there's, there's yeah. you know, professional citizens that follow these things and there are people that live their lives and they don't follow these things. So right. I, I appreciate that. You know, one of, one of the, one of the things I, I always dig about uh, poli-sci departments and people that are working in this is the understanding of, of, of how to, you just mentioned a second ago, how to break ideas. And, and this is, uh, I'm going to talk about the hydrogen development act here. I, I really can't, when I think back, I can't think of many opportunities that were are generational as the governor uh, sort of positioned this that were approached with such a thin, you know, run up to such an enormous idea. And, and, and sometimes politics is, is the idea of holding, you know, something under someone's nose and convincing them it smells like an orange. Do, do you know what I mean? It just yeah. really was very little effort. I'm so curious from your point of view, how the, the art of the deal for the hydrogen act went to you, because to me, that's a, a year and a half long discussion, frankly statewide with a lot of stakeholders, lots of landowners. I'm, I'm curious where you saw the hydrogen thing either rise or fail. I mean, it sort of surprised me in general that it was sort of coming up. Yeah. Because it's not the kind of thing that we've talked much about in the past. And it seems to be linked to legislation at the federal level and money that's available at the federal level to encourage the, these kinds of right. developments and transition to this kind of energy source. Um, you know, this is, this is one of those things that citizen legislatures have a very hard time dealing with because it's extraordinarily complex. Mm-hmm. And when you have a, you know, a, a situation like this, we even, even on things that, um, you know, we say payday, uh, here's an example, sort of the payday, the payday lending, uh, act, We've talked about that for years. And in terms of the complexity of that relative to a transition of sort of energy to this this new hydrogen hub concept, uh, the complexity of the payday lender bill, uh, that's not that complex compared to what we're talking about here. And we talked about that for we talked about that for a long time. And so, you know, this is just going to need, it's going to need more time. It's going to be going to need more thought. There's going to, there, there's a lot of stuff that just happens, has to happen outside of the legislative, legislative session, given the nature of our sessions. And um, that, if, if, if that doesn't happen, that's really, it's really difficult to produce success on things in a, in a, in a 30 day or a 60 day session. How do you even have that kind of a conversation about generational energy change without a full-time legislature? I really don't know how you can even possibly have it because you can't, you can't, you can't fill in the gaps with interim committees, you know, in road shows and Zoom meetings. I mean, we're talking about a commitment to a form of energy here. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, and, and, and what you've got in, you know, certainly the, the, the rural parts of this state uh, with regards to these, you know, hydrogen hubs and, and sort of the jobs mm-hmm. and the economic development that's going to happen, you've got an immediate concern, right? And so there's a lot of support for it in those places because it's immediate. It's something that we think is going to 
help with jobs. It's going to help with, right. you know, the, it, it's immediately going to help the transition from coal-fired plants and so forth that are being shut down or powered down in some sense, to excuse the pun. Um, mm -hmm. But um, that's immediate. But then there's these longer-term things that have to do with, with climate change itself. And we say, mm -hmm. well, climate change, and, and even there, it's like, is it a longer term thing? Uh, it's not, right? Because we're in a climate mm -hmm. crisis. And so you got people saying, right. this is a crisis and we want to do this about it. You got other people saying, well, our immediate needs are this and they don't, mm -hmm. they don't always drive. So it, right. it, is, it is hard and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, well you mentioned see. You mentioned earlier uh, coalition building. And I have to wonder if this hydrogen hub uh, deal exposed a rift in the Democratic Party that we might not have given enough credence to. The, the rift naturally exists, as we know it, environmentalists you know, versus the very center of the Democratic Party that might lean a little towards business. That's always been there. However, something seemed a little more vigorous from the environmental side. And it was almost as if the, the, the folks that wanted this hydrogen deal had even, never even talked to them. For gosh sake, it was an amazing thing. I'm curious your sense of the, of the opposition and how it shaped up within that party, what, the politics there. How do you see that? Uh, again, I, I think it's I, I think there's you know there's just a real difference between sort of you know rural Democrats um, mm -hmm. and kind of the needs that are connected to sort of economic development and these um, you know the 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 day to day sort of existence versus versus more progressive Democrats that may be representing mm -hmm. urban areas that have a different kind of, you know, uh, just are gonna have a different take on this. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, I think it, I think it does expose that rift. It's not like uh, that, as you said, Gene, it's not like we don't know that that's there, it is. Uh, mm -hmm. But these kinds of issues, especially, you know, when you got things that, you know, again, are sort of immediate, um, you know, bread and butter kinds of issues in one part mm -hmm. of, a, of mm -hmm. a democratic coalition and people that, are, you know, the Democrats that are representing those folks versus another, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're going to see it. And so it's going to, it's going to take some effort uh, and time to negotiate those differences, to come up with something that's, right. that's going to be palatable for both sides. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about crime. Uh, obviously, that was the big issue going into the session and by the governor's own word, indeed, uh, of course. But again, something seemed to go a little hinky in the process. And we had a lot of movement. We had, boy, there was the, the use of um, moving, you know, uh, content between bills, which happened yeah. with the Voting Rights Act and the crime bill. But for the crime bill specifically, I'm curious from your point of view where you think the public might be sitting currently watching what didn't come out of Santa Fe with so much noise of going into Santa Fe for this session about crime, even knowing, you know, legislators have a difficult task on this. What, what's your sense of how the crime thing shaped up? I think they've done a lot of good. I, I mean, I think they've done a lot of really good things, um, mm -hmm. you know, re re recruitment and retention pay. Um, is, a, is a good thing. I think the, the issue around, uh, you know, ankle, ankle monitors, I think, I think that's a, a very good thing. Um, mm -hmm. But the most visceral thing with regards to the, to the crime challenge is when, you know, people get released, uh, people who are, you know, uh, the, where the allegation is that they've committed a violent, a, a violent crime, uh, mm -hmm. and, then they, and they get released, they get pretrial release, uh, and they do something else. 
I mean, that's, that's the visceral kind of thing that really gets people angry and, and looking at the system and saying, how do we ever move forward? How do we ever address the violent crime problem in big metros like Albuquerque? How do we ever mm-hmm. do that if we can't hold people? Um, and so, you know, as a, as a, as a public policy, as a, well, as a, as a, so there's a policy debate mm-hmm. on this. That says, well, you know, that's really not the problem. Right. That's really not the problem. The problem is we need to be able to arrest people and we need we need punishment to be swift. And we need that, you know, we need we need to be able to do that. We need to more effectively, you know, we, we've got to we got to be able to arrest people. Um, and, and then and then have a speedy trial and, and, and all that. Um, you know, that's sort of that's the that there's so there's this policy issue, but in terms of the politics of it, the visceral thing is, is going to be more, it's going to be more important, right? Because there's right. a sort of heady kind of policy debate and it's probably correct on the merits. Uh, but again, there's this, there's this visceral kind of political issue around, you know, re- releasing people who, who are, you know, where, where the allegation is that they've committed a violent crime. Right. I have to agree. It is visceral. You can almost picture it if you're a regular citizen. Are there political implications this election season for Democrats on crime, uh, in your view, Dr. Krebs? Well, I think, you know, the, you know the, the history of political parties in the United States, and I think voters' perceptions of, of, uh, of the political parties on the issue of crime is that the, the, the Republicans sort of own the issue of crime and law and order, mm-hmm. uh, and Democrats do not. So, you know, one of the things I think is, I mean, I don't, I don't, of course, know this for a fact, but certainly in, in the politics of an election year like this, uh, you know, Democrats are trying to get out in front of that, that particular political dynamic where, you know, the Republicans may be saying, look, you know, don't, don't elect Democrats because look what happens when you do that uh, in places like Albuquerque and other big, big areas where, you know, Democrats are in charge. We've got a Democratic governor, we've got a Democratic legislature and the crime problem's out of control. So yeah, they may be on the defensive on this question um, come the fall. They have the, they, they, there, are, there are things that they can point to of a bipartisan nature that came out of this session. But again, I think mm-hmm. that, one, that one big one, uh, right. the most visceral one, uh, that's still out there. Yeah, very much so. I, I agree with that. Uh, would it be your sense that there's a possibility of a special session regarding crime? Would that be politically a, a good move for Democrats? Based on what came out of the session, I would I would say pro- probably no. I don't know if you know. I don't know if there's any. Um, I, I didn't. I don't have a sense that there's there's any room for moving forward on on that core issue. Uh, if they were able to, if they were able to figure something out fairly soon, then yeah, you know, that might be something that would be advantageous, certainly for, for Democrats this cycle, especially the governor, right. uh, if they could, if they could work on something and get it and get it passed, um, mm-hmm. some kind of compromise that would allow, you know, folks who are concerned about some of the civil liberties issues involved here. Um, and, and, and of course the, the, the issue of, of, of stopping violent criminals uh you know if there's a compromise on that then i think it would it would redound to the benefit of democrats for sure Mm -hmm. well there is some risk certainly i can hear it sort of in the background of what you're saying that is if if they do go to a special on crime and at the back end of it come up with something that's really not that satisfactory (laughs) there's political implications there for on an election season as well i I would imagine absolutely 
absolutely. Yeah. And especially and you don't it, go ahead. Sorry, mm-hmm. I was going to say politicians are sort of naturally risk averse. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <you know? laughs> well, it would be this, the lone spotlight. You wouldn't have any other legislation to hide behind. Literally, the, the whole focus would be from the entire state on crime, and you got to deliver. So it would, I agree with make or, it would be a make or break moment, for sure. That's right. I'd have to agree with that. Absolutely. I think. I, hence, I think you're right. I don't think you're going to see a call for <laughs> for, <laughs> for a special. That's for sure. Hey, we had an interesting turn of events. Uh, certainly, with Speaker Eagle announcing his resignation, uh, the timing was certainly interesting. Uh, none of us really know why. I'm sure he'll let us know at some point what the actual, if there was, the actual reasoning behind it. But the, on the politics side of it, going into an election year, uh, and we're not going to do predictions here because it's, it's just too far away. But yeah. I'm curious in the in the climate that we're in, if there's a certain type of a personality politically that might work right now. Do, do you know what I mean? Because you mentioned earlier, we're in sort of a, a law and order phase of life. I mean, all that kind of thing. Any any sense of that? What type of person in, in leadership would would work at this point? Yeah, I mean it's 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 really hard. You know, the sort of number. It's really hard to sort of to to, to think about this. You know, sort of yeah. down the road. I mean, the climate. I mean, look at what we did this session. You know, we we're, we're spending fourteen percent more, but we're cutting taxes. Um, you know, we didn't get uh, we didn't get voting reform. We didn't get uh, the environmental mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. They got some stuff on crime. Um, you know, that's uh, that's an indication that uh, you know that either the you know that that sort of more conservative forces in the legislature maybe you know m- you know moving ahead that they're achieving some success. Um, mm-hmm. As far as as far as the leadership a leadership decision uh, on the House side. You know the number one the number one goal of leadership is is really to sort of keep peace in the family, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So you know having somebody in that role that can bring together, you know the different sides, different different facets of the Democratic Party in the House, the progressives and the more conservative. Uh, interesting having somebody that's 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 important. Um, mm-hmm. and that will be important going forward. But then there's you know the numbers, uh, and so you've got more sort of progressive Democrats representing the rural, the the, uh, the urban areas, uh, vis-a-vis the Democrats in the rural rural areas. So numbers-wise, I think that uh, w- you know would suggest that there's going to be somebody who's you know kind of li- along the lines of uh, of Brian Egolf or uh, a little bit to the left. Mm-hmm. Interesting point there. You know, I gotta wonder if there's going to be pressure at some point to have a more rural-based legislator. Um, in that speaker position, if there's any advantage for the party, uh, given the times, I, I don't know personally. I, I one way or the other. But do you have a sense of that? If a rural legislator to be in that speaker role would make an appreciable difference in the body right now? Well, not right. I mean, I don't. Not right now. I mean, because we've yeah. we've just concluded this, the session, and then we'll have a we'll have elections in the fall. So I mean, it would it'll 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 depend upon what sort of the you know mm-hmm. what the policy mood is heading coming out of the election and sort of where right. we think we want to go that'll that'll be a really important thing uh, that that will i think influence the selection of the, the next speaker the other thing i've yeah. noticed is that you know you could you could elect a, a progressive democrat in the role of, of speaker and you know just being in that role it, it doesn't it, that doesn't mean that everything that that's coming out of the leadership's office the leader leader's office is going to be on the progressive uh, end of the spectrum 
because mm -hmm. they change in the role. I mean, they, they, once you're in the role, then you're confronted with, right. oh, yeah, I've, I've, I've got to lead this caucus, not just That's dictate right. this caucus. And, you know, that, that can change how people behave otherwise. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's, I think that's an important thing to, to consider as we move forward. Leadership is, that's being right. in a leadership role is a different thing than being in a normal legislative role. That's right. Another little point there too. I appreciate the sliding up the timeline there. I sort of misspoke there, but you're right. It, it'll depend on who the governor is, of course, as well. And that'll set a tone as well. If, if the governor holds, that's one thing. If she doesn't hold, that's a whole nother decision point <laughs> right. for a leader role. Mm -hmm. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. Because now Absolutely. you've got to get anything done. You, you're going to have to have somebody who can who can negotiate with somebody from the other party. And that's in, right. And in this climate, that's a difficult thing. Uh, we're not as polarized as the nation as a whole at the state level, but you know it's moving in that direction. So it'd be really right. really difficult if somebody from the other party gets gets control. Yep, I think that's pretty clear. I there there is a lot of shifting sand right now. But speaking of the governor, uh, she dropped a bit of a bombshell in that post uh, the presser following the legislative session. But regarding masks and dropping the use of masks, and I found it interesting that she chose to say it was not a political decision or politics didn't really uh, make a, a, a data point in her decision. I don't know about that. Something <laughs> it's a part of me. You know, is there any downside politically? You know, to ending the mask to mask, uh, you know, mandate at this point. What, the politics behind it. I'm curious in your about your thoughts there. Well, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I, I noticed that too. Uh, in the in the press conference about it, you know, it's not there's not a political decision, um, and you know anything a politician does is political. I mean, it's right they behave politically, right. and that's okay. That's the, yes. the thing is that that's okay. That's what that's what they do. That's their job. Um, and so you know, every people always have that. Well, is that politically motivated? Well, of course it is. I mean, mm -hmm. because they're politicians, and that's okay. Um, you know, there's there's information though, she's that she has at her disposal, and and, mm -hmm. and information is suggesting that you know doing this is a reasonable course of action, mm -hmm. um, and she's now got some precedent with other Democrats in other parts of the country, other Democratic governors and other other states that are lifting the mask mandate. Um, it was set to expire in early March uh, anyway, so we're just moved it up a few weeks. Um, uh, you know the, the the downside for the for for the governor would be if there's a you know an additional spike and we move too too quickly to 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 uh, right. move the mask mandate. I mean that's then that is like oh we, the governor can't get a handle on this issue and it's a disaster and we've got crime out of control and and all right. these other kinds of things in the environment and you know then that so it's you know so it's risky it's, it's risky some. Um, but mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, it, it, it will make people who haven't been her biggest fans happier, um, you know, so, so in that sense. That's right. Let's finish where we started. And I appreciate your time today. That's for sure. We're talking with Dr. Timothy Krebs from the UNM Poli Sci Department, where he's a professor there. And I want to just finish with the length, again, the length of time that we dedicate ourselves to this with our legislative session. In your mind, doctor, is it a full-time legislature or bust, or would six months work? Would ninety days work? In your, in your scenario, can we sneak up on this somehow? What, what would be optimal for you? Yes, I, we certainly can sneak up on this. It doesn't have to be. There, I, I cannot imagine a scenario in which 
we decide as a state to change our system to look like California, which is right. essentially the California legislature is essentially like the United States Congress in terms yeah. of its level of professionalization. Uh, so no, I, I don't see a scenario as we ever go to that model. Uh, we, you know, we don't have the population. We don't have we don't have the we don't have the need for that. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I could see something that that moves us in the direction of kind of a hybrid model uh, between a citizen legislature and a more professionalized one. Um, and you know, increasing the length of the session is something I think that would be beneficial. But the other thing that would be probably even more beneficial is to increase the number of staff uh, mm. that work in the legislature. Because what the legislature lacks most of all, in my judgment, is it lacks that capacity to handle big complex issues. And this is not, I'm not, this is not a knock on our state legislature, legislators mm -hmm. at all. I mean, they're very bright, hardworking public servants, you know, <laughs> and hats off to them. Uh, but it's just a kind of impossible task, really, to do the kind of work we expect of them in these short sessions uh, without that sort of staff capacity to help them sift through the complexity of these things uh, and all the, the nuances and potential consequences of legislative action. I mean, so, yep. so that's what as a, I, as a, I couldn't agree more. As a former congressional staffer, it yes, really does okay. come down to staff. They do everything, not everything, everything, but you know what I'm saying. It, Absolutely. It, you, you cannot expect people who are running businesses, running farms, running, you know, to sit down and dedicate them, themselves to hacking through every day, you know, these incredibly complex things like you're saying. Yeah. I, I, I got to think that has a possibility of a chance, Dr. Krebs, of, of some, we have the money now, literally, <laughs> to oh. start paying for professional staff, don't we? Well, we do. I mean, you know, the budget, the, the budget's really grown tremendously. I mean, I can remember yeah. a time when it was like, you know, $5.8 billion. And then it was like right. $6.2 billion. You know, they, they sort of stayed that way forever. Now we're up over eight. So it's kind of like right. you know, eye popping in some ways. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think, I think it's there. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it would be very, and we're not talking, there is staff. Right. There's there's sure. staff yep. in the legislature, legislative finance committee staff. They do a tremendous That's right. job. They're brilliant. Yeah. They do a tremendous job. Legis you know, education study committee, le legislative services. They do tremendous work. But what we don't have is that sort of personal individual staff for individual legislators helping mm -hmm. legislation to formulate it, run interference, you know, talk to people, develop mm -hmm. coalitions, compromises, information gathering. That's right. So that's right. Comparisons to other states, data. Sure. We need a lot of data going into any big decision, all that stuff, just stuff they, that they do. And Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more about the California system. I grew up in a state that had a full time legislature. And honestly, it, it, at times it just acted like a triple A farm, uh, you know, <laughs> team yeah. to the U.S. Congress. Right. Honestly, that's what people were there for was to, to showboat their way into the Congress. And we're not looking for that here. We need we need problems solved. We need problems people solved. looking. That's right. That's right. Yes. And I and exactly. Gene, like, like you, I was a I'm a former staffer too in the California legislature before ah. I decided to do this. So I, you know, I saw that up close, you know, just the 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 work that was done and and just the complexity of stuff. So yeah, I mean it's that's right. It's amazing. You get four people behind the scenes working 80 hours a week, and we think we can have this part-time legislator do the same thing on their time. It's just not going to work. 
Right. Oh, my Lord. Dr. Yeah. Timothy Krebs from the UNM Poli-Sci Department. We are a professor. Thank you so much for your time on this. I realize it's very difficult to follow up a session almost immediately right. and have some opinions formed on it. So we really appreciate you taking a walk with us here and, and doing, the, doing the thing here on New Mexico PBS. Uh, thank you very much. We'll check in with you again on that. And folks, uh, tonight at 7 o'clock, we're going to have some coverage with some reporters uh, from all over the state to talk about what happened on the session as well. So we'll see you tonight at 7 o'clock. Dr. Krebs, thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Have a great weekend. Thanks for having Absolutely. me. Yeah. All right. All right, that's all for this episode, but we will for sure be seeing and feeling and talking about the repercussions of the legislative session for weeks, months to come. So keep it right here. Make sure you subscribe if you don't already. Uh, and want to ask a favor, if you can, leave us a review here uh, wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out a bunch. We'll be back again in just a couple of days with a brand new episode with lots of other great content. We have got an artist who has dedicated her artwork to bringing light to the legacy and history of uranium mining in New Mexico, which we know and have covered has had consequences through generations here in our state. We also will introduce you to the new director of the Africana Studies Program at UNM, which is about to become a fully-fledged ethnic studies department. So we've got that for you. We will also be learning about the history of the Albuquerque Indian Boarding School, which has been in the headlines, especially after the discovery of hundreds of unmarked graves at the site of an Indian boarding school in British Columbia. We know some of that history is paralleled here in Albuquerque at the 4-H Park. Uh, there was a plaque there that was actually vandalized, and the city of Albuquerque is going through a lengthy process to figure out how to uh, recognize and honor that history. And UNM architecture professor Theodore Hohola has got that history, and he shares it with our correspondent, Antonia Gonzalez. So tune in for all of that. Until then, stay safe and stay healthy. <laughs>